Guys, if you are new here, if it's your first time, if you're just visiting, we do want to say you're so welcome with us. We really hope you uh, enjoy your morning with us, and whether it's just for one morning or you're looking for a place to settle, we, we really hope that you're, you're blessed by this and you're what with Jesus is blessed by, by just being here this morning. Um, just as a, a church, I'm just going to let you know what's going on here. So we're about to launch a, a, a new mini-series for six weeks, um, but we've been going through uh, the book of Corinth pretty much you know, verse by verse, very slowly, some might say laboriously, we would say uh, meticulously. Um, how are they for sign words, sorry, <laughs> using the small signs there. Um, but if you, if you think about Christian teaching a bit like a river, um, then we find that the book of Corinth is a bit like this. It's very downstream teaching. There is a lot going on in this book, and it sometimes feels a bit wild and like you're flying from place to place. Paul's addressing um, things going on in the church. Some of them land with us, some of them don't, and you can sometimes feel a bit buffeted and be like, where am I going? And actually, I think as a leader, we recognize that sometimes in a long um, ser- like sermon series like that, you can start to get a bit sermon fatigue can set in. So what we wanted to do was just go back to the other end of the river, to the source of the river for a time, to go back to where it all begins, to some of that simple yet powerful teaching of Jesus, the source of everything in Christianity, that wonderful uh, man-God who walked on this earth uh, over 2,000 years ago. So we want to go back to looking at six teachings of Jesus that are so small in numbers of words that you could miss them in the sea of the Bible and all the other teachings. Yet these teachings are so incredibly powerful. We want to look at six magnificent mustard seeds of Jesus that, when lived, can change so much around us. And this morning, I just want to explain two things. What I want to do is I want to say, what, what are we talking about when we're talking about magnificent mustard seeds? What's the, what's the point of that? What's the point of this series? Um, and what do we want to achieve through this series? And I want to also then look at the first magnificent mustard seed, just one of the small mustard seeds. All right, two, two things. It's a sermon in two parts this morning. So firstly, why, why mustard seeds? Well, I guess... One of the huge criticisms of the Western church that gets levelled at it time and time again is that the percentage of the Bible that we know and can spout by rote is far higher than the percentage of the Bible that we live. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever felt that? Often we've got great big head knowledge, but sometimes our lives... I get left behind, they drag. And there's a great pastor called Rick Warren in America. And because of this very gap, he challenges his church that the only bits of the Bible we truly believe are the parts that we do. It's a bit like the really challenging bit of James, where James levels at them. You know, don't, don't just listen to the word, do the word, do the word. That's when it's truly landed. It's truly, you're truly soaked in it. It's truly transformative, powerful, able to change the world around you when we are living it, when we are doing it. Big challenge. And to be honest with you, just this is a gap that I know in my life that I can talk more of the words. Everybody knows I can talk. But I can talk more of the word than I live in practice. 
But it's also one thing that the spirit and the, the life of God that he has put in me is hungry day by day to see change. I want to narrow this gap between what I know and the way I live. He is at work in me, challenging me, saying, man, no, come on, come on with me. Narrow this gap. So a massive question for our faith, for this church, for the Western church, is how do we bridge the gap between knowing the word and believing the word to such an extent that it is on display in our lives? And there are two potential ways of going about this, I guess. One is probably just to beat ourselves up and try really hard. And for us to say at the front, you're not trying hard enough. It'd be great to come to a church, isn't it? You are just, you're just failures. I'm just a failure. Try harder. Try harder. Or we could say, just relax. Just relax. Let the Spirit do it all. Just don't have to do anything. It's all okay. Super active, where it's all on us, or super passive. Do you know, it's neither in my experience, seem quite right in some way. There is definitely some growth in my life that has come from just resting in the Spirit, without a doubt. You know, God is so unbelievably faithful that a huge amount of change just seems to happen in your life as you walk with Him. Yet, I'm sure the gap remains bigger than He wants it to in my life. I'm sure of it. And you know what, there's some merit to effort and discipline. Yet when I try in God just to grow by my own will and effort, I grow weary and my faith sometimes seems lifeless. Do you know this? Where you go down this path of just trying, 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 and all the water of the Spirit, all of the joy of it just seems to dry up as you go along. Anybody known that? A few nods of the head, yeah? So what's the answer to this Great criticism of the Western church. Is it lifeless discipline or lazy grace? And is it a gap worth bridging? Do you know what? I think Jesus addresses this very question in one of his many parables on what the kingdom of heaven is like. In Matthew 13, 31, 32, he says this. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Small. Here we have a simple gardening picture from the mouth of God of how the small things of God grow into magnificent, living, active things that affect the world around us and become a refuge for life. And as you meditate on this, that's what a parable's for, it's a little story to take away and think about what the implications are. It's not something where everything's given to you. Jesus loved to start people thinking, to do that bit of just dwelling on the word ourselves and as you meditate on this I think it teaches us some very simple yet powerful things about Christianity 
and bridging that gap between the knowing the word of God and living it. And what do we find out then? Well, I'm just going to look at three things very quickly. That there's a bit of man and a lot of God in this process of growing in the word. See, the man in this process takes the tiny seed and sows it in his field. He actively takes the thing that can seem so small and so meaningless in a way, but he sees its worth and the possibilities of what it could grow into. And he puts it into his field, the place that he nurtures and tends to, into a place where it can grow in his life, and he nurtures it. And this is the part that's so often missing, if I'm just dead honest with you, in my life. that I don't grasp the possibilities of the words that I read in the Bible. I don't meditate or reflect on them enough. I don't put them in an environment that I nurture. And what happens to seeds that are not sown? They remain small. Their full potential is not realised. And they remain hard to see. However, alongside this active process, this come sow it in your heart, come sow it in that place where you will nurture it, In this parable, there is an amazing certainty that the seed will grow when the man sows it. That is completely outside of the man's hands. This seed is remarkable. It has everything it needs to grow. There is a promise from God in this parable that he will make the word grow in your lives as you nurture it. And how it will grow naturally from the smallest seed to the biggest plant. The teachings of God have a life beyond effort. And when we truly sow them, they will grow and transform our outer. There is a little bit of man and a lot of God in this process of seeing the kingdom truths grow in our lives. Secondly, that there is grace in the gap between knowing God's word and living God's word. You see this clearly, I think, in this parable. You know, growth, by its very nature, does not happen instantaneously. It's not like, wow, Chris C.B. Uh, spoke it, Butters spoke it, got a Matrix-style download, plugged my head into the computer, boom, got it, holiness. Ah, hallelujah. It's not like that. There is a time to it when we're growing things and no time limit on how fast they should be grown. And that is okay. Do you know, Jesus lived a perfect, a perfect and exemplary life. Why? On our behalf. So we don't actually have a bar to attain to anymore. There's no super Christian man that we should be at any point in our lives. That is the grace of God. He accepts you as you are. And he knows that there may be a gap between knowing and living the word. Yet, by his grace, he withholds nothing of his love. 
Don't be fooled by some lie that there is some place you should be in your Christianity to really be a good Christian. Good Christians rest in the grace of God and they know that security. But part of his grace is that he has given his kingdom to grow in us. To let us shine as the light in the world in increasing measure and more of his goodness to daily flow out of us as we plant and nurture the seed in our lives. So we can rest in the fact that as we nurture the word of God, it will grow into life at a pace at which it grows. There is grace in the gap, I see, as I look at this parable. Finally, though, there is incredible power in forming godly character. There is some enormous worth, enormous worth, in planting God's kingdom teaching in our lives. If you have not started doing this yet, if it has dried up in you, today is the day that you start replanting it, re-sowing it. Why? Well, often we talk of the power of the Spirit in churches like ours, which is right absolutely right. The Spirit is mighty and powerful. And often we talk about the might of the Word, but often I find that there's a little bit missing in some of the things that we talk about. And one of those is the power of a character transformed by the teachings of Christ to bring life into the world and situations. The power of a transformed character. Do you know that God wants to redeem and transform your character through his Word? Because it's one of the mightiest things that he can do in this world. Here we see that as the scene is grown and nurtured and God causes it to take root, that the language of the field becomes a garden, a place not just of, of work but of joy and of fun and life, and the seed becomes a massive tree, a refuge for a variety of life to rest in. There's huge worth. As these things are visible, we find that so it is with, with God's word in our lives. These words, they start small, don't they? Love the Lord your God with all your strength and love thy neighbour. Don't sin against God when you're angry. Think the best of others. Tiny snippets, but when you plant them, when you nurture them, when they become the defining way that you interact with this world, over time, these words have all they need for God's life to flood out of you into every situation as they guide your responses in life, as they guide your choices in life. Do you know, I think one person who knew this more than any was actually King David. We see him right at the beginning of Psalms, of all of his praises of God. And this man went through some stuff. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. He knew something of this process of sowing the seed of God in his heart, of loving it, of allowing the word to take root and transform him. And he found there was like a tree planted by streams of living water. A wonderful image of life, isn't it? Now, this series looks at six tiny sayings of Jesus, mustard seed sayings, that if we plant in our life, 
water and allowed to grow and transform our character. As the fruit of their growth is seen, they have the power to change everything around us. And we have a challenge as a leadership team to two sets of people within this series. Those who know God, number one. Maybe you know the gap between what you know and what you do. Maybe you don't. But I believe God wants to use this series to jumpstart a freshness in you and us as a church. A hiding the word in our hearts again. For cherishing the teaching of Jesus. For nurturing them and letting them bring new life into this city through the transformation of your character and responses. Something that we all need. Something that has to work in all of us. That through new growth in your life and character, he wants to affect your relationships, your work, your neighbourhood, your children, your marriages. Group number one. Group number two, for those of you who maybe don't know God, who aren't so sure about God, but who are interested, I want to ask you to join us for as many of this series as you can. And I want to give you a six-week challenge. Try applying these sayings to your life. See if they're good. Test them. See if they have a positive effect. See if they have an outcome. Do you know, we're saying that Christianity is the way to live. It's a bit unorthodox, but I want you to listen to the words of Jesus with us as we go through them. I want you to have a little go, if you've not before, of applying these to situations and seeing if there's new life in them. It's part of the thing that Christians find that Christianity works. And it does bring new life to situations. That as we follow Jesus like little Christs, our lives and those around us are transformed. See if that rings true. Join us. And with the remainder of this time this morning, I just want to look at the first of Jesus' magnificent mustard seeds that we're going to be looking at. There are many more than we're going to be looking at. We're just going to be looking at six of these. Easily overlooked, but unbelievably powerful. Let's go on. And there's the first one. Please remove the log from the... Fill in the gap. Do it politely. Eyes. Oh, I was expecting some naughtiness there as well. Come on, there was plenty of room for toilet humour. Oh, you're all so hot. You're all so holy. You're all so holy. Look at that. Come on. <laughs> Part of me's a little bit disappointed, actually. Like, that's a... Anyway... What's that? What was that? I can't help myself, is it? Can't heckle oh, I can't heckle myself. But if no one else will, I will. Okay, so this first mustard seed we want to look at is in Luke 6, 41 to 42. I'm just going to read from the uh, New International Version. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye or log. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Easy. Got it. Done. Makes sense. Easily washed over. Yeah, one to soak in. That has mighty implications. Tell me, have you ever judged another person? Honestly, yeah? Have you ever looked at another group of people who are not like you and fixed on their faults? Have you stereotyped them? Have you ever been 
with an individual who had a in really irritating character trait. Don't heckle me now. <laughs> and become a bit fixated on this annoying negative trait. You're all laughing too long at that. Have you ever, and I think this verse is where this has some of the biggest application, been in an argument or a conflict or been offended by somebody, critiqued by someone, and just become focused entirely on the wrong that they are and have done to you. You know, each of these have been an issue in my life at different times. You know, I remember with the first one, being at a wedding with a bunch of Christians, some of whom were leaders with us in the last church I was a part of, and we started talking about chavs their violence, their dress, their attitudes, and their dogs. And to my shame, how bad they were essentially as people. That word, chavs. Where me and others had just entirely stopped seeing them as other people in that conversation. I felt very, very convicted of this later. Secondly, I remember I shared a room with two other guys in Brazil for around six months, and... Uh, one of them had a fungal foot infection. Honestly, this was one of the lighter pictures that I could find to show you that issue. And throughout the time, like, he would treat this fungal foot infection with fungal nail powder. And every morning and night, this was a small room, he'd put his foot up like this, and he would pour fungal nail powder all over his foot. And being lads, all of our stuff was kind of around the room as well. So like, you'd wake up and you'd have this, this dust yeah, strewn on the foot. You know your husband. <laughs> and there would be this fungal nail dust over everything every morning and night. And after a while, I totally forgot about the good aspects of this guy. He was just fungal foot guy. Like, rank, gross, fungal foot guy. And I was, at that time, I was still 19. And anyone who knew me through university will know that I was not a cleanly guy. So to actually have... have uh, affected me in this way is quite something. It was dis like, honestly disgusting. I've got over it. He's more than that now. Uh, I still don't speak to him. I lost sight in this moment of him being a great bloke, though. I just became about judgment. He was just this guy. Honestly, I was angry with him constantly because of the irritating thing that he was doing. And the final one I struggle with every time I have an argument with my wife. In that moment of conflict, I forget all the good things about her. My perception of her, my my lens becomes distorted and all of her beauty and the undeserved love that she has shown me daily falls away. I forget it in a moment. I forget all of the good things about her and I become fixed on why she is wrong and I am right and how she always wrongs me. And it's fair to say, in the wash, I am not always right. There's just an untruth. I see the situation without truth in it. I see me as faultless and her as entirely for blame. I judge. And this first mustard seed, this very first mustard seed, was, occurred, like so many of the others we're going to look at, actually as part of a Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus was speaking to a great crowd of people challenging unhealthy ways to live and instilling healthy ways back into mankind. And this part of this sermon, Jesus is addressing all of these situations and the character traits that cause people to respond in judgment. 
Here Jesus simply talks about how he and God feels about us seeing fault in others. About dwelling on it, fixing on it, talking about it, and defining others by their faults. Seeing only the wrong in them in any situation. And he says, any situation where we may become self-righteous judges of others is wrong. Is wrong. And Jesus here in this statement of just 77 words completely condemns this type of reaction that contains so many aspects of our lives. Our work relationships, our friendships, our relationships with different people from different backgrounds. He says, when I react like this, there is a massive heart issue in me. And as a follower of him, I need to remove judgment from my life and live completely differently. And I just want to have a look at how he tells us to live differently. Firstly, he tells us, in any situation where judgment rises up in you, see judgment as the problem. Judgment is the bigger issue. It is a plank compared to a speck. This is shown in verse 41, in the beginning of verse 42. You know, it doesn't matter much in each of those examples that I've given you that, well, you know, chavs, they might have been the more violent people. They might have used worse language. They might have had more horrible dogs. It doesn't matter that my friend's foot was truly disgusting. And it doesn't matter that I might be right and Becky might have done something wrong in that argument. That should not be my primary concern, this tells us and Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us anywhere where judgment has risen up in us, that this should be our first concern. Jesus here is calling us to recognise that self-righteous, judgmental responses are no small issue. You know, in reality, as I think about it, some of the worst things in humanity have been done because of this issue. And a vast number of horrible crimes are committed every day because of this issue. And millions of relationships have broken down because of this issue of the judging spirit rising up in people. The Rwandan massacre, the violent abuses against whites in Zimbabwe following independence, were justified as payback against those bad people who were outside of us. And to some extent the Jews in the Holocaust was justified because they were judged as bad, greedy people. So it's all right. It was a fixing on the negatives and seeing one group of people as better than another. They have oppressed us, they have robbed us of sex, so we can respond badly. It is justified. In my other job, as a probation officer, so many violent crimes are because they're just from a rival gang. They're black, they're white, they're Liverpool supporters. Is that the only one that is justified? Yeah, okay. Wrong, wrong. You don't know how bad she was to me. I've heard that so many times. People become focused on the issues that they see with others, fixing on the things that they see as negative. Likewise, 
relationships, the start of the rot in a relationship is when we start to dwell in the negatives of other people and on their faults. That leader, he's always my wife. She's never. Judging responses blind us. They cloud our ability to see ourselves and others rightly. With others, it warps our view, distorts it, dehumanizes other people, making everything they are about one bad thing, causing us to forget that they are people whom Jesus loves. And with ourselves, focusing on the problem in others stops us seeing clearly what we have made done, may have done wrong in a situation. It stops us changing our own problem behaviour. In any relationship of any sort, there are no one-sided problems. Other than mine truly, yours truly, there are no perfect people. So that was meant to be a gag. Shame on me. So the presence of a judging spirit and any self-righteous response should trouble us immensely more than the issue that we see in others. And Jesus draws this to the forefront here and says, no, wherever, in whatever situation you see the spirit of judgment arise in you, that is the greater issue than the thing you are judging. It is the root of much evil and destruction in society. See it as such. It is like having a log in your eye compared to a speck in someone else's. It is a massive problem that blinds you. So it's the plank of judgment you should be concerned with. That's what he tells us in this short passage. Secondly, he says, remove the log. So get rid of the judgment. This is great. He asks us to rethink any situation where we might be inclined to judge somebody else. He says, don't think of it first as a way to pedestal yourself above somebody else, to put yourself above somebody else. Think it first as an opportunity for humble transformation, to see logs taken out of your eyes that you hadn't formerly noticed. 42, first take the plank out of your eye. When you realise that the plank is present, you are then able to take it out of your eye. I love this statement. Rather than an opportunity to fix someone, change somebody, win the argument, show how much better we are than them, teach them a lesson, judge them. He says, whenever you see this kind of thinking in you, it is first and foremost an opportunity to be transformed by the word of God. And that in any moment of self-righteous judgment, God wants to bring his changing grace into your life. Have you thought about it like that before? Maybe you have, that's okay. But it's a really powerful way of rethinking situations like this. You know, there's a great American preacher, Billy Graham, who in his younger days uh, reportedly said that no matter who it was that brought him criticism, even if it was the worst sinner or most self-righteous individual he knew, first and foremost, he would thank them for their feedback and would explore the amount of truth that there was in their criticism. That's amazing. You know, there are no worse situations than feeling unfairly criticised 
or attack for feeling judgment rear its head in you towards the person who is criticising you. To hit them back with their faults. Yeah, but you. But Billy Graham here saw what Jesus was teaching. That situations where you could judge is always a situation where you can learn and be transformed. To deal with things in you, to grow you, to remove the spirit of judgment within you. Billy Graham did not fix on why he was better than them, but used the situation to grow and be transformed. But like this, tossing the cable. I hear that um, back in back in the day, weren't you the um, weren't you the leading cable tosser in, in all the world? Yeah, no, no. Sorry. What's that? You know, as a leadership team, we're all different. And we don't always get things right. We sometimes beef at each other. But most of the time, uh, after we reflect, we will come together and we'll say, look, sorry, and we will learn from it. We say a lot of sorries to each other in Freedom Church in the time that we've known each other. And, do you know, it's one of the greatest places of learning that goes on, I would say, in my life. I mean, if you ask... Uh, Chris and Chris, what I was like at university. They've known me since then. I was a little bit more of a state than I am now. And without their input, without that time, you know, of, of just of seeing those situations in that way and being changed, I would not have been changed by it. I would not have been changed from it. We're working towards a place where those conflicts are places where we remove the log from our eyes. Wherever you feel like you want to judge, it's an opportunity to be transformed. Remove the log from your eye. Only then, only then, he then says, remove the specks. says, only once you have removed this log, this gaping log from your eye, will you see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This verse does not say that the speck you saw originally should not then be removed and that we should be passive Christians. But after you have seen the log, removed it, dealt with your heart, then you go back to the person and can help them, and only then. However, this time with no log in your eye, you can see clearly. What does this mean? Well, this time so you can see clearly the full person they are. You're not just seeing them as their faults. You're seeing them as a whole person. And you can come with genuine humility into that situation because you see your failings in that situation as well. Listen, the Bible is full of places where we're asked to rebuke one another, isn't it? To challenge one another. It's part of being a mutually discipling community that brings each other on in gospel truths. People need people to grow in good character. It's like I just said about me when I was in university. Had I not been challenged, had I not been rebuked in love, I do not know where I would be, honestly. I honestly could not share with you the debt I have to guys like Chris and Chris in my life. Without their input, I would not have grown fully in Christianity. Without their challenge. But the way that we do this in others has to be in love. 
and has to be done after we've addressed the blinding log in our own eye before drawing it out from other people. We must see clearly. So please remove the log, that's it. That's magnificent mustard seed one. But I think we've got to see its possibilities, haven't it? Haven't we? To really, to really grasp how powerful that could be. So what would it look like if we were truly more concerned about non-judgment and taking the judgment out of our lives? If we see every conflict as an opportunity for that transformation and restoration, and that only when we saw clearly, only when we saw clearly the fault in the person that we were seeing it could be removed. I think it would look a little bit more like this story. Do you remember when Jesus restores Peter? Do you know that story? So the story goes that Jesus, uh, Peter, a follower of Jesus all through his life, at Jesus' very time of need, denied that he ever knew him. And he denied that he knew him three times. And the next time that Jesus catches up with him is on a beach after he's been resurrected. This is the next time that they encounter. And Jesus knows what he's done. And do you know Jesus' response in this situation? It's this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This interaction of Jesus didn't carry with him that destroying sense of judgment. Do you know, if I had gone to this situation after he had denied me three times, my initial response would have been, you scumbag, you loser, you said you would follow me. I cannot believe you. You're nothing. I'd have been so angry. But not Jesus. Instead, he gives this loving, restorative rebuke without this sense of self-righteous judgment that does not bring brokenness, but healing and transformation. In this moment, Jesus could have crushed Peter. But because there was no self-righteous judgment in this moment, because he still challenged Peter, Peter became the rock that Jesus had always intended him to be, on which the church would be built. Now imagine for a second that you let this teaching of Jesus grow in your life so that every one of your interactions, every time you feel inclined to judge, it brings about an outcome like this. That is restorative 
that is transformative, that brings this new life. Marital arguments become marital growth. Church disputes become uh, ways of people growing and us growing together. Office conflicts, ways of improving office culture. Do you see the power of this mustard seed? Have I managed to communicate that to you this morning? This tiny teaching of Jesus that we could wash over. But if we plant it, if we nurture it, if we think about it, if we spend time on it, if we allow it to grow and we see its power and worth to transform our lives and our character around us, the possibilities of that. Amazing. 77 words, but a teaching that touches so many of our lives. That's the might of Jesus' teaching. Simplicity, yet powerful, that he wants us to grow in like David the psalmist.